0: But in the process of vastly improving how we do things, we might become unrecognizable to ourselves.
1: Welcome to the Long Now Boston podcast. I'm your host, Kray Novik, and today's show is a conversation with Nir Isakovitz, who is an associate professor of philosophy and the founding director of the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Recently, his work has been focusing on the impact of artificial intelligence in our everyday lives and experiences. In this conversation series, we sit down with artists, scientists, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders of all kinds who challenge new ways to think about the deep future and deep past. Mir Isakovitz writes and teaches primarily about political reconciliation, transitional justice, and the ethics of war. In this talk, we'll explore the ethics of AI and the negative effects of social media on culture and politics. These technologies have increased communication and inspired social change, but they're also changing the human beings they are intended to serve in unanticipated and potentially harmful ways. We'll explore questions like, what will humans be like in hundred or one thousand years? As we embrace new technology to become better, stronger, smarter, healthier, and more long lived, what do we give up? This talk was recorded in Cambridge, Massachusetts in November 02019. This is part one of two for our seminar about technology and ethics of future humans. You can find part two featuring James Hughes in our podcast feed. Let's get started. Here is Nir Isakovits.
0: So without further ado, um, we were asked to uh, speculate about the future, uh, generously and liberally. There's two ways that you could speculate about the future, at least two ways that you could speculate about the future. Um, One of them involves just imagining a completely different, radically different future, an unrecognizable, future. Leonard Cohen, who's a better poet than he gets credit for, uh, has a song called uh, The Future. And one of the cooler lines there are, give me back the Berlin Wall, give me Stalin and St. Paul. I've seen the future, brother. It is murder. In the context of artificial general intelligence, um, that is, I'm sorry, in the context of artificial intelligence, anxieties is about AGI that. Uh, apparently keep Elon Musk uh, awake at night when he's not, um, yeah. Um, Those are speculations about what happens when one day um, artificial intelligence gets to humankind, human level problem solving and judgment and intelligence, Um, the singularity, what happens if it uh, uh, surpasses us robot overlords and so on and so forth. Stephen Hawking apparently worried about this uh, as well before he passed away. Um, Another variety of uh, thinking about the future uh, involves extending current trends, stuff that is uh, already happening into the future, and looking at slowly accumulating uh, effects. Uh, Actually, it's interesting, the name of our uh, host organization here, uh, Long Now, uh, suggests that even though I, you know, obviously wouldn't speak for you. But having a long kind of now projected into the future and uh, measuring and looking at effects of what's already happening is another kind of way of thinking about the future. Uh, And that's the way that um, I'd like to. That's the kind of speculation that uh, I'll uh, I'll engage in here. So there's no drama and no frightening uh, vision of a different uh, reality. Just a description of a slow death by a thousand cuts. Um, the, second, the second quote that you have there um, is from uh, another beautiful poem by Erilke called The Future Also. The future, you have that on your hand, diet. <clears throat> The future, time's excuse to frighten us. Too vast a project, too large a morsel for the heart's mouth. So there's something that's fundamentally diff- difficult to figure out uh, about it. Uh, so let me talk about two contexts uh, for the extension of this kind of uh, present into the future, of present uh, uh, developments uh, and trends into the future. In each of these uh, extensions, I don't want to make a technophobic argument, but I do want to make an ambivalent uh, argument. Uh, The first one has to do with uh, judgment-replacing technology. So a growing range of the judgments that we're already making is being uh, replaced by uh, algorithms. So these include uh, large chain store hirings, mortgage approvals, teacher termination, police force allocation. These are judgment calls that used to be made by people, and are now being made uh, to a large extent algorithmically. And as these have um, extended, we've heard a lot of concerns about uh, fairness, the fairness of these processes. Could there be algorithmic bias? There is algorithmic bias uh, um, uh, driving them. Uh, do the biases of the coders somehow uh, 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 influence the result? Garbage in, garbage out, and so on and so forth. Uh, but since we're, allowed to, since we're allowed to speculate, what if algorithmic bias disappeared? Algorithmic bias, in some way at least, is a technical problem. You could have better coders, or you could have better uh, controls, and uh, the algorithmic biases could be, at the very least, improved. Uh, so what if algorithmic decision-making was uh, fair, safe, and uh, transparent. Would there be anything left to worry about? So in other words, the robot police chief that allocates police forces goes through a rigorous process of uh, quality control, and the police force allocation under those circumstances is more fair and more efficient than the human police chief allocating police forces under conditions uh, of scarcity. Or. Um, the uh, credit approval decisions made by algorithms after a long and painful process become more fair, more transparent, more efficient than the ones made by uh, human beings. Um, Is there anything left to worry about? And I worry, and I think there is something left to worry about. Uh, We're judgment-making animals. Our judgments often suck, but we are judgment-making animals. And our life makes sense to us when we make them. And our life is literally demoralized when we stop making them. There are judges who quit the bench on the background of, for example, um, mandatory sentencing guidelines, which are a primitive version of a judgment-making algorithm. So the question then becomes not so much about the the scary failures uh, of um, AI, but about its uh, scary successes. Successes both in terms of efficiency and maybe even in terms of um, the ethics, uh, at least of how uh, our everyday experience seems to us. What happens? We like exercising our judgment. Uh, and exercising our judgment makes us feel that our life is meaningful and that we matter. And the opportunities that a lot of us have to exercise our judgment are at work. Where middle management used to make credit decisions, middle management used to make police force allocations, middle management used to make hiring decisions. Middle management used to make mortgage decisions and so on and so forth. Increasingly, these aren't made by people anymore and that will grow. Um, What does that herald? If we make fewer and fewer judgments, do we lose the ability to make judgments? On an Aristotelian picture, making judgments, making moral judgments is like going to the gym. You either use it or you lose it. Um, You have a nice quote there uh, from Aristotle, uh, which um, you could take a look at later, but that's essentially the argument that he makes, that judgment making is akin to some kind of muscle memory. Um, Now of course the argument from um, the technologists is that we'll just be promoted to making higher level judgments, that we'll just be promoted to making more strategic judgments, that by saving us the need to make repetitive judgments, everybody will uh, move on to the sunlit uplands and we'll uh, all make uh, strategic uh, uh, judgments. Everybody will become a strategist. Well, I mean, I'm Israeli. I come from a country where everybody is a strategist. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. And to be serious for a minute, the economic incentives of the technology are not to move everybody up to make strategic uh, judgments but to move everybody in some way out uh, so that there's a cost-efficient solution. So that's one kind of projection into the future. We don't have an artificial general intelligence that rivals human beings. We don't have a Uh, Mary Shelley-like being that is an artificial humanoid, and that's not in the cards, I think, for a while. Nobody knows when that's in the cards for. But what we do have is, in a series of very uh, secluded tasks, uh, algorithmic ability that in each of those tasks, or in a growing number of those tasks, uh, is better than human ability. Uh, And if that's extended across long enough tasks, the result in some way might be similar. Uh, so that's, that's the first point. Um, the second context um, is, uh, has to do um, with um, the technology's uh, capacity to uh, predict our taste. So we know that AI's primary, primary uh, project is prediction in some very straightforward uh, manner. Prediction of future preferences based on past behavior and informed by large data sets about our past behavior. So we're shown across very different platforms of engagement, be it social media, be it streaming content, be it shopping, content that we are likely to be interested in on the basis of what we were interested in in the past. Um, So this is straightforward, those who like this book would also like A, B, and C, those who like this movie would also like uh, movies 1, 2, and 3. Uh, you watched A, B, and C on YouTube, or you engaged with uh, one, two, three on Facebook, and the content is curated such that you're likely to see things that you will stay uh, engaged with. Now this, of course, and this is nothing new, can create self-confirmation bubbles, social media community, where flat earth people are led to believe that the earth is really flat and not challenged by those who say that it's not. And for the record, it's not. Um, And others have called this a kind of virtual set of gated uh, uh, community. Uh, By the way, the predictions can be also very good. Um, Jay and I have been uh, just recently uh, uh, talking uh, about this. They can weed out nonsense. They can save you time. They can even increase the diversity uh, uh, of what you see. Your experience can be curated to make Facebook or Google a lot of money, which it is being curated to do now, or it can be curated to increase varied and competent exposure and cut the crap out of what you see. Uh, the, The technology really can do both of those things. My question is not so much that. My question is, again, assuming the best about these curating technologies, these technologies that curate your experience. Assuming that they curate your experience well, what's the status of curated experience, of curated exposure? Is there something to be said for non-curated exposure? I mean, that's gone, but uh, this is an exercise in nostalgia, so I'll ask, right? Um, Is there something to be said for bumbling, stumbling, Inefficiently serendipitously, finding uh, our own experience, that is increasingly not happening uh, it's not happening on ways, which is how I got here today, and uh, it's not happening on the next movie you watch. The other day, I was trying to uh, show another political philosophy class um, uh, a movie about uh, the uh, Bosnian civil War and Amazon's, uh, Amazon Prime's uh, recommendation algorithm found me a great movie and saved me two hours, which I was grateful for. Now, in the process, I would have you know, probably stumbled on some movies about origami and watched those. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't happen. That didn't need to happen anymore. Um, And that is taken to be a net positive. I'm not sure it is a net positive. I guess that's the kind of point I'm trying to make. You have a quote there from uh, John Stuart Mill, who's the sort of famous uh, prophet of uh, liberal individualism. And Mill makes this argument that it's very important somehow if we are going to be attached to our views and if we're going to be attached and care about our projects, that they be our own. And this one I would like to read to you. He says, a person whose desires and impulses are his own, and I'm sorry for the masculine language, this is uh, 19th century uh, social reform, are the expressions of his own nature as it has been developed and modified by his own culture is said to have a character. One whose desires and impulses are not his own has no character no more than a steam engine has a character. As it is useful that while mankind are imperfect, there should be different opinions, so is it that there should be different experiments in living. That's a famous phrase that he coins, different experiments in living. That free scope should be given to varieties of character, short of injury to others. Um, In conclusion to uh, my piece of the evening, look, I meant what I said about ambivalence. Technology vastly improves how we do things. Without Waze, I would still be looking for CIC, often even with Waze, I'm looking for CIC. Uh, I think the true prophet of this uh, point was uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, who was crazy and was a wonderful writer, and I think really got something about technology, that there's essentially no such thing as absolutely linear progress, that it usually comes with, if not completely parallel, then significant regress. Um, And Rousseau writes in the Discourse on the Origins of Inequality, an essay that he uh, penned in response to a writing competition that the French Academy uh, sponsored. He writes, of this transition from what he famously calls the hunter-gatherer, noble-savage kind of existence to more technological existence. And he says, with that primitive kind of technology, all of a sudden, we manage to create huts. We manage to create communities with shelter and with heating in the winter. And that's a huge thing. We don't freeze. And we get leisure. And here's what happens. with the leisure. As ideas and feelings succeeded one another and heart and head were brought into play, men continued to lay aside their original wildness. Their private connections became every day more intimate as their limits extended. They accustomed themselves to assemble before their huts round a large tree, singing and dancing the true offsprings of love and leisure became the amusement, or rather the occupation, of men and women thus assembled together with nothing else to do. Each one began to consider the rest and to wish to be considered in turn. And thus a value came to be attached to public esteem. Whoever sang or danced the best, whoever was the handsomest, the strongest, the most dexterous, or the most eloquent, came to be of most consideration. And, with, and this was the first step towards inequality and at the same time towards vice. From these first distinctions arose the one side, on the one side vanity and contempt and on the other shame and envy and the fermentation caused by these new leavens ended by producing combinations fatal to innocence and happiness. A great optimist, yourself, so, right? <laughs> but um, you build huts, you don't freeze, you have time to dance around the fire You dance around the fire, and you say, "Uh uh-oh. Jay is a better dancer than I am. And envy enters the picture, and resentment enters the picture. And they are the sort of unstoppable concomitant of the fact that you've made progress. You can talk to your relatives on the other side of the world. That's deeply enticing. That's deeply attractive. The same machine that makes that possible makes you not pay attention to your kids on the other side of the dinner table. So um, that's the ambivalence of it. That doesn't mean it's not worth doing. It's probably worth doing thoughtfully. It's probably not worth doing with a sort of uh, blind automatic uh, um, optimism. So let me leave it uh, here and hand it over to uh, Jay.
1: That was near Isakovitz, recorded live at a Long Now Boston seminar in November 02019. It is part one of two for our seminar about technology and the ethics of future humans. You can find part two featuring James Hughes in our podcast feed. Thanks for listening to the Long Now Boston podcast. Be sure to visit longnowboston.org to join the conversation and access the show notes. We'll be back soon with another Long Now Boston conversation. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. It helps us a lot, and we appreciate it. The Long Now Boston podcast is a production of True Spectrum Media based here in Boston, Massachusetts. It is produced by George Gantz and Gary Oberbrunner and edited by your host, Kray Thanks for listening, and so long for now.